You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is part four of the Belgica Expedition. I have one note to get things going, and that is you don't really need a map for today's episode, which is a rarity for this show, and that is because the Belgica is stuck in the ice and being pushed whichever way the pack sees fit. You really don't need to know anything more than that. So, as I said, last time we left Belgica stranded in the ice as the winter of 1898 approached. The men were furious with Commander Adrian de Garlache and Captain Georges Lequante because most of them assumed that their bosses had gotten them trapped in the ice on purpose, and they were right. De Garlache had wanted to avoid the criticism of the press and the public, which he felt he would have faced if he had retreated Australia, his mission far behind schedule. Now, the two men claimed getting stuck in the ice was a mistake, but it was one of those lame excuses that no one really bought. Of it, Lequante said, quote, It is certain that we honestly tried to return toward the north. But it is certain as well that Degarlache and I were happy about the failure of our attempt. End quote. It was a weak excuse, and as I said last time, a fundamentally awful thing to do. Degarlache was playing with the lives of the men, who had never agreed to such a thing when they signed on. Life at sea was already a hard prospect, and now Degarlache was doing this to them to protect his fragile ego. To assume all the men were prepared for such an experience was the height of arrogance. Not everyone had the physical or mental makeup to survive a winter in a polar environment. And let's remember, Belgica had to withstand the winter as well. If the ship could not, it would be crushed, and the men were almost surely doomed. Anyhow, the crew did understand that they could do nothing about the decision. They were stuck in the ice, and they simply had to prepare as best they could for the upcoming winter. Degarlache said it best when he wrote, quote, We are no longer navigators, but a small colony of prisoners serving their sentence. End quote. It was mid-March 1898, so the temperatures weren't too bad. Below deck, it was 50 degrees Fahrenheit or 10 degrees Celsius. Outside, it was negative 5 degrees Fahrenheit or negative 20 degrees Celsius. No one knew how cold it would actually get, because let's remember, no one had ever spent a winter this far south. This was all new territory. Since the crew had not expected to overwinter in Antarctica, proper clothing was limited. The team had only brought enough for the four men who had expected to overwinter in Victoria land. Otherwise, the ship had plenty of food, but most of it was canned. Plus, there were hundreds of bottles of wine and champagne. There were still two months of sun left, which meant the men could still hunt seals and penguins. As a note, the ship was stuck firmly in the ice. Areas of water opened up periodically around the ship. However, they would freeze over quickly, dimming any hopes they might escape. 
Of it, Frederick Hook said, quote, Few of us entertain any hope of seeing real water or land again until the Frost King loosens his grasp on us. End quote. And so around the ship, the men prepared for the long night. There were only 18 men on board Belgica, so things weren't too crowded. There was a great room in the forecastle, which is the front of the vessel, where bunks lined the walls and the men gathered to chat, play cards, and listen to music. Ludwig Jalmar Johansson was an accomplished accordion player, while Jean van Mirlo was a not-so-accomplished coronet player. Despite their varied skill levels, everyone appreciated their efforts, which helped liven the crew's spirits. For the officers, Degarlache had the largest of the quarters. It was carpeted and had a desk. Captain Loquante had his own room, while Dr. Frederick Cook and Henrik Artowski shared a space, as did zoologist Emil Rakovica and Emil Danko, the latter Degarlache's oldest friend. Roald Amundsen, the first mate, bunked with the third officer, Jules Maillarts. The latter was Belgian, and I have not mentioned him before. Amundsen and Maillarts didn't like one another. In fact, from my understanding, Maillarts was not particularly cared for by any of the officers or scientists. It wouldn't be long before he left his cabin and took up quarters with the regular sailors in the forecastle. Amundsen would write, quote, We did not get on well together, so I shall not deny that I am pleased about this. End quote. The seven scientists and officers would spend much of their time in a common area called the wardroom. They had a library and even a mechanical organ called a colophon. The ship, by the way, only had one Bible. This had been deliberate on the part of Descartes Lache. He had wanted to avoid religious disagreements, as the Belgians were mostly Catholic and the Norwegians were mostly Protestant. Therefore, there is little regarding religion that crops up on the Belgica expedition. Otherwise, around the ship there were laboratories for Arktowski and Rakovica. A blacksmith shop was set up, complete with a small boiler. This was used to melt snow for drinking water. To conserve coal, the ship's second mechanic, Max von Reiselberger, devised a system that burned a combination of coal and seal blubber. This worked brilliantly, although it imbued the ship's underdeck with a unique odor and, in time, a layer of greasy soot. No matter, I love this because it demonstrates just how amazingly ingenious people can be when they need to. There's an old saying, necessity is the mother of invention. When the chips are down, people figure stuff out if it helps them survive. Another place on the ship that would be active in the coming months was the dark room that had been made up for Frederick Cook, who, in addition to being the ship's doctor, was the expedition's chief photographer. He would take some beautiful photos during the coming months, including some stunning ones of the Belgica stuck in the ice. And so the men of Belgica settled into life on the ship, preparing for the day where the sun went down and didn't return for 70 days, something they were dreading. As I noted, there were hunting parties, something the men welcomed as it took them away from the drudgery of life on the ship, even if they disliked the messy business of killing the animals. The men found the seals took multiple bullets to kill, and the penguins were difficult to kill due to their human characteristics. They were cute and playful, and they would walk right up to the men as they had no fear of humans as they had never encountered them before. And the men found that Van Mirlo playing his cornet would attract the penguins, and so they'd play the instrument and lure them into an ambush. As I said, they really disliked this, but they knew the food would be needed. The scientists conducted readings and did their measurements. A tent, really a little hut, was set up near the ship, a hole drilled into the ice, allowing for specimens to be gathered, such as fish, plankton, and krill. Plus, they made regular depth soundings and logged the ocean temperature to go with the measuring of the snowfall, the air temperature, and air pressure. Amundsen would work with Rakovica to design some deep-sea ice fishing gear, and Amundsen and Cook would huddle together and try and come up with ideas to make better polar equipment. In reality, the Belgica had become a small village on the ice, and the men worked well together, striving for a common cause as they readied for winter. 
Now, I do want to talk about one scary incident, which took place on March 14th. It was on this day that Dr. Frederick Cook was almost killed. The day was a clear one, and it marked the appearance of the Aurora Australis, the Southern Lights, which is the equivalent of the Northern Lights, found in the Northern Hemisphere. This phenomenon is caused by the buildup of electricity in the atmosphere, but at this time it was poorly understood. The Aurora Australis is a display of brilliant lights that appear as curtains, rays, spirals, or dynamic flickers covering the entire sky. And on this day, the men poured out onto the deck of Belgica to watch this extraordinary display for hours. Well, Dr. Frederick Cook decided to walk about 150 feet from Belgica and make himself a nice little spot to observe the skies. He brought with him his reindeer skin sleeping bag and settled in on the ice. It was about 2 a.m. that morning, and the display was beginning to fade. Well, Captain Laquante was watching the sky for another phenomenon, the eclipse of Io, one of the moons of Jupiter. Laquante was watching for the eclipse when he noticed some movement about 150 feet from the Belgica. It was, he thought, a seal. He thought it best to take the opportunity to add to the ship's meat supply for the winter. Thus, he went and got a rifle. Well, it's not hard to imagine what was about to happen. Laquante sighted up his prey, but then the eclipse of Io began. Laquante decided to abandon the hunt and went to watch the eclipse. When he was done, he decided to observe the last vestiges of the aurora and left the seal on the ice alone. Later that morning, Frederick Cook fell asleep on the ice, woken by some curious penguins, and headed back to the ship. There he was horrified that he had almost been shot. Now, all the activities and preparations aboard Belgica were great. It kept the men occupied and focused. However, even before the sun disappeared, Dr. Cook began to notice signs of physical and mental stress. Cook, as we have discussed, had a way with people. He took an interest in the men, and they appreciated his genuine concern. Thus, they opened up to him. He saw that stress, fear, and anxiety were building. Ahead lay isolation, freezing conditions, and possibly starvation and death. That was a daunting thing. Also, physically, the men were beginning to show signs of fatigue. Emil Danko, in particular, was often short of breath, an ominous sign. Cook's ability to connect with the crew was very real, and it wasn't just for show. He had a genuine concern for everyone on the ship. And so, in late March, he took the time to interview each man on Belgica, asking them about their concerns and frustrations, but also things such as what were they missing about their home? What were they dreaming about? In some ways, I think he became the ship's therapist as well as doctor. Because of this, the crew felt that someone actually had their interests at heart. That's a big deal. By the way, the single greatest source of discontentment on the ship was the food, which we'll talk a bit about later. After food, it was a lack of female companionship. Otherwise, in some ways, Cook's situation was a bit odd. He thought of himself as an observer of people, and now he was going to see how 18 men were going to survive in an extreme environment for many months. It probably thrilled him in some ways, as well as terrified him. No matter, the man's genial and sympathetic nature would make him the most popular person on the ship. And so Belgica sat, trapped in the ice, throughout March and into April and then May. And as the darkness came, so did the cold. There had been hopes that the temperatures wouldn't be as extreme as in the Arctic, but that theory was soon proven wrong. In April, temperatures dropped to negative 37 degrees below zero Fahrenheit, or negative 38 Celsius. Temperatures as low as negative 45 degrees Fahrenheit or negative 43 degrees Celsius were eventually recorded. Here's an interesting thing I learned from reading about the expedition. The men found that the best temperature was around negative 15 degrees Fahrenheit, and that's because all the moisture was frozen out of the air. If it's warmer, the humidity makes its way into everything, and that was frustrating. 
Example, Frederick Hook wrote how, during a time of warmer temperatures, he was pulling some nails and found them covered in ice due to the humidity. Anyhow, I'll move us closer to the long, dark night, but before we get there, I want to talk about a few things. The first item on the list is that Belgica continued to, erratically, move south. By mid-bay, she was at 71 degrees, 35 minutes south. Second, as I said, Belgica was always moving, and at the same time, the ice was always shifting and changing as well. There was ice and snow everywhere, and flows of ice pushed together, creating ridges called hummocks. These could be as high as 20 feet or 6 meters. When they came crashing down, it was a dangerous situation. By the way, because of all these ridges and icebergs, the landscapes around Belgica were anything but smooth. If you look at the photos of Cooks, you will see countless ridges, big and small, in virtually any photo. And speaking of icebergs, they would push their way through the ice, these slow-motion behemoths, crushing anything that got in their way. The threat of Belgica falling into the path of an iceberg was small, but very real. All this made the ship creak and groan under the never-ending and shifting pressure. Third, regarding the ice, crevasses would suddenly open under the feet of the men, so they always had to be on alert. One night on May 13th, a crevasse opened near the ship, directly beneath the little science hut the men had constructed. The crew were able to rush out onto the ice and save the structure, but they did lose some gear. By the way, these cracks and crevasses were never big enough for the Belgica to advance into, and they always iced over quickly. Fourth, as winter approached, the storms got worse and worse. The temperatures continued to drop, there was a relentless wind, and snow got into everything. The crew began to build snowbanks around the ship for more insulation. Fifth, as the dark approached, Cook ordered the men to exercise. He would lead them on regular skiing excursions to keep them active. The men, however, were ordered never to leave sight of the ship, and that's because the landmarks they had couldn't be relied on because they could change due to the shifting ice. And finally, there was a growing sense of melancholy amongst the crew. They were becoming increasingly isolated. There were no more penguins seen, only the occasional seal or seabird. This was making the men feel small, almost insignificant. And thus they were dreading what was ahead, and it weighed on them. Men were reporting in sick more often, and signs of depression were growing. Daguerlache let Dr. Cook deal with all of these problems, but deep down the commander was afraid that the men would rebel against him, although there really wasn't much he could do about it at this point. And then on May 16th, the day that everyone dreaded, arrived. The sun was gone. The men now faced 70 days of darkness. Belgica was completely alone. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. 
Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. It was mid-May 1898. Belgica's crew now faced what they had feared, weeks and weeks of darkness. Commander de Galache knew that he needed to prepare his men for the next few months. But before we dive into life on the Belgica in the dark, I want to recount an incident that took place on May 17th, just a day after the disappearance of the sun. Captain Laquate was on deck and, to his shock, he saw a flickering blue light to the west. This was unnatural. He quickly got others to stare off into the darkness, and to everyone's surprise, they saw it as well, a flickering light. The men were, as you can imagine, energized. It had to be human in origin, they said, perhaps a person carrying a lantern. They speculated that it might be another ship, or maybe there was an unknown race of people who lived here, like the Inuit of the North. They had to investigate, and that fell on Roald Amundsen, who took up the challenge with great vigor. The young Norwegian strapped on his skis and headed off into the night. When he returned, he brought disappointing news. The source of the flickering light was some bioluminescent algae. Any hope of finding another ship or civilized people was dashed. And so the long night of Belgica continued. Let us talk about this. As I noted, the crew continued their routines and duties. Men would get blocks of snow to melt for drinking water, readings and data were collected, that sort of thing. Degerlach set up a schedule of eight hours of work, eight hours of leisure, and eight hours of sleep. Of course, there wasn't exactly a lot to do, so boredom was soon the crew's biggest foe. To counter this, Degerlach set up a calendar giving the men things to look forward to and occupy their time. This included things such as birthdays and holidays. Extra food would be served, including champagne. Alcohol was banned outside of special occasions and on Sundays when the men got some grog and wine. Degarlash knew what would happen if the men drank too much and too often. It was a smart decision on his part and something he didn't back down on. Now, to be honest, the men of Belgica did so many things right to prepare for the upcoming winter. But one thing they weren't prepared for was scurvy. We have talked about scurvy so many times on this podcast, and it is deadly if not addressed. Scurvy is a lack of vitamin C. It is readily available in fruits and vegetables, but those were nowhere to be seen at this point of the voyage. Trace amounts of vitamin C are found in raw meat, and that's how people like the Inuit survive in the long northern winters. And while the crew of Belgica had stockpiled quantities of penguin and seal meat, the men disliked it intensely, so they refused to eat it. What they were left with was canned food. The problem with canning is that you need to heat whatever you are canning, which kills the nutritional value of the item. This was true even for lime juice, a staple in the English Navy for a century. Degarlache had a quantity on board, but all of it was canned, meaning the nutrients had been destroyed. All of this meant that the first signs of scurvy were appearing amongst the crew. This included lethargy, headaches, dizziness, and irritability. Cook took these as signs of anxiety caused by their situation, not of the disease. Food would, as I mentioned earlier, become the greatest source of discontentment on the ship. The cook, Louis Michat, was not a chef, and basically his cooking, I'm using air quotes there, consisted of opening up canned food, adding a little water, and mixing it all together. It made every meal into a mushy gunk, indistinguishable from what had been eaten the day before and the day before that. This meant rotating the types of food really did not help, as they were all equally awful. Michat's attempt at baking were equally futile. The difficult thing was that Michat was working hard, but he just wasn't trained to be a chef. Degerlar said, quote, Poor Michat, he is so full of zeal that we closed our eyes to his lack of culinary aptitude. End quote. 
Michat's attempts to cook seal and penguin steaks were equally a disaster, as he wildly overcooked them, which destroyed the nutritional value of the meat. The only person who ate these were Roald Amundsen, no doubt looking at eating crappy food as some sort of trial that he had to endure to thrive. At first, the meals were met with good-natured jokes, but in time, the men grew to resent the same terrible food, their comments turning mean and angry. Author Julian Sancton, in his book on the Belgica expedition, said this about the challenges faced over the awful food. Quote, Life in the pack offered very few things to look forward to. Mealtime should have been among these. Instead, they were dreaded. Eating the equivalent of prison food was to the men a nightly reminder that they were trapped, and it had an incalculable effect on morale. End quote. That is a great summary about the food. Except I want to add, the food they were eating was threatening to kill them, as it lacked the essential nutrients needed for survival. I want to note that this discontentment with food was noted by later explorers. Ernest Shackleton, on his expeditions, made sure that his men got good food, a variety of it, and a quality chef. The latter is really important, as you need someone who can be creative with a limited arsenal. And so the Belgica began her long night, the condition of the crew deteriorating. Frederick Cook decided to have each man undergo a regular physical exam. It wasn't long before he saw some alarming results, especially amongst the crew's heart rates, which came in alarmingly high and Cook was surprised at how quickly the men's mental health deteriorated. Moody is probably the best word to describe them. Cook would say, quote, The curtain of blackness which has fallen over our outer world of icy desolation has also descended upon the inner world of our souls. Physically, mentally, and perhaps morally, then, we are depressed. End quote. By the way, I always admire Cook's writing. He can't always be trusted, but the man had a way with words, and I think the last quote shows it you really get a feeling for the darkness that had gripped Belgica and her crew. Now, I want to stress that not everything was always gloom and doom. In the early days of the ship's long winter, the crew organized an elaborate beauty contest. One of the expedition's backers has donated 500 illustrations of women, some in various stages of undress. The men thus conducted a contest to select the perfect female. The men would spend days lobbying each other to promote their favorites. They called it the Grand Concourse of Beautiful Women. One of the daily joys of the crew were the cartoons of Emil Rakovica, the Romanian zoologist. Rakovica was a skilled artist, and every day he would create these pencil sketches that offered a real-world view of life on the ship. Author Julian Sankton said that Rakovica was, quote, a scathing caricaturist with an Eastern European fondness for the absurd and a scatological streak, end quote. So that means lots of wacky stuff and poop jokes. Also, the men played cards and games, while Johansson and Van Mierlo entertained everyone with their accordion and coronet playing, respectively. Now, there are two things I want to talk about. The first is about rats. They had come aboard Belgica in Punta Arenas, but now their numbers had multiplied and they were becoming troublesome. The men would hear the squeaks in the floorboards and walls. It was only a matter of time before they got into something important. The situation wasn't helped by the fact that the ship's cat, Nansen, was showing signs of being sick and had lost interest in hunting. The second thing I want to mention is a threat to the ship that came up at the end of May. The ice, as I discussed, was always moving, always changing. For the men of Belgica, they would literally hear these sounds, the convulsions and collisions that would travel through the water to the ship. Captain Loquante, who was a former artillery officer, compared it to the rumble of field artillery. And that takes us to May 28th, when a big crack in the ice suddenly appeared beside the ship. The next day, the ice closed the crack with a strong push, forming a massive ridge, bigger than Belgica herself. 
This ridge continued to move towards the ship. For the first time, the ice was really threatening the ship, and the men could do nothing about it, only watch. And then on May 30th at 10.30 in the morning, all the creaking and moaning of Belgica stopped. The men looked outside and saw that the ice had released the vessel. Belgica was floating in water. Now, you might think that this was a good thing, but it's not. It's almost as if the ice was taking in a great breath and it contracted away from the ship. Well, if you take in a great breath, a huge exhale is going to follow. The men knew this, wrote Amundsen saying, quote, Now we will be able to see how strong our old ship was. End quote. And the ice did exhale and pressed towards Belgica with immense power. At 11 a.m., the ship shuddered as the massive ridge that had formed collapsed, slamming down into the ice. The ice piled up against the back of the ship and spilled over the gunnels. In the front, a great slab of ice pressed against and under Belgica, lifting the vessel into the air several feet. For the next day, the ice continued its assault on the ship, but Belgica held firm. The sturdy little whaler would not be defeated. Eventually, the ice would retreat, although the ship remained sitting at a slight angle. Everyone exhaled, but they all wondered, what if it happened again? That led to a plan being set up to evacuate the ship. If Belgica was destroyed, the men would load the two lifeboats with provisions and drag them hundreds of miles to the edge of the ice pack. From there, they would sail to the South Shetland Islands. This plan was a desperate one, and the chances of survival would have been next to nothing. Anyhow, as June arrived, the men's health continued to deteriorate. Headaches, insomnia, lethargy, pains, muscle spasms. Cook noted the men's ankles and eyes were getting puffy and their muscles soft. Their skin was oily and took on a pale greenish hue. Some of the men were sleeping way too much, others too little. And the cardiac symptoms were growing. Heart rate shot up at the slightest effort. The normal heart rate of a man is about 60 to 100 beats per minute. After half an hour of modest movement, a man could have his heart rate rise to 140 or more beats per minute. The men who endured this best were Cook and Amundsen. Cook makes sense as he had experienced all this before and understood the situation. Plus, he kept active and busy. In addition to his duties as doctor, he led the men in exercises, and his photographic work and writing kept him engaged. As for Amundsen, well, let's just put it down to Amundsen being Amundsen. This was just another trial. He would endure to make himself better. But I want to stress, both of these men were showing signs of scurvy, just not as acutely as the rest of the crew. One of the men most affected by all of this was Dagar Lash. The Commandant suffered terrible headaches and took to brooding alone in his cabin and suffered badly from anxiety. But no one struggled health-wise more than Emil Danko, Degarlache's old friend. We mentioned earlier that he had been experiencing a shortness of breath, and there was a reason for this. It turns out that Danko had a serious health issue, an old heart lesion, which led to a leak in one of the valves. This caused his heart to enlarge and the walls of the heart to thicken. When Cook examined him, he knew things weren't good. He diagnosed Danko with atrophy of the heart. He predicted that he would be dead within the month. When Degarlash was informed of the situation, he was crushed. He felt responsible because he had known about Danko's health issues. And you are probably asking yourself, why did Degarlash bring his friend to one of the harshest environments in the world? Well, there was a reason. Degarlash had initially rejected Danko for the expedition, knowing about his health problems. But Danko didn't care. He knew he had a heart condition, and he still begged his friend to take him. Danko had grown up with a very domineering father, and he longed to have one great adventure in life. He told his friend that if he wanted to take him, he would head off to the Congo or some other equally extreme place. Degarlas thus took his old friend into the expedition, and while he had done so under protest, 
and knew the risks involved, it didn't make the Commandant feel any better about the situation. As for Danko, he took the diagnosis in stride. He had known this was a possibility. No matter, Dr. Cook ordered Danko to be closely monitored. A place for him was set up in the wardroom, the most comfortable spot on the ship. Laquante took over the magnetic and gravitational measurements that had been Danko's responsibility. The end for Danko was not far off. His condition got progressively worse, and within days it was clear that his kidneys were failing. He could hardly eat, and the pain got so bad, he was given morphine on June 5th. Emil Danko died that night. He was 28 years old. Degarlache was crushed, writing, quote, None of my companions was dearer to me, nor, I believe, more devoted. End quote. Danko had been Degarlache's personal confidant, a rock in a world of uncertainty. Thus, he was overwhelmed with grief and guilt. The men of Belgica had liked Danko. He gets overlooked on the expedition, but he was known as a kind and energetic and hard-working young man. That night, Danko's body was draped in the Belgian flag, while Degarlache, Laquante, and Amundsen took turns keeping vigil. The next day, Danko's body was placed in a sailcloth bag to be brought onto the ice for burial. Before the bag was sewn up, the men put into it a bouquet of dried flowers. The flowers had been given to Danko by his mother, and she had asked him to bring them back to her. The men thought it fitting that he was buried with them. Danko's body was thus placed on a sledge and hauled out onto the ice the next day. It was negative 31 degrees Fahrenheit, or negative 35 Celsius. The men had worked hours to dig a hole in the ice, about 300 feet from Belgica, taking advantage of a recently opened crevasse in the ice. Degarlache delivered the eulogy for his old friend. After that, the sledge was brought to the edge of the crevasse and tipped over. Danko's body, which had weights tied to it, thus slid into the crevasse. The burial was, however, not without drama. The body, stiffened by rigor mortis, splashed into the water and then shot back up. It surprised everyone, one man letting out a curse. And then the Arctic Sea took Emil Danko. The men stood around the crevasse, wondering if this was their fate. Antonio Dobrowolski, the assistant meteorologist, would say this, quote, Goodbye, goodbye, Lieutenant Danko. You are not the first, and you are not the last. Maybe we will meet again, maybe even this winter. End quote. Danko's death was taken hard by the men. They could only wonder who they would have to bury next. And so Belgica was gripped by darkness, cold, and sickness. There was no open ice, no signs of life around them. Things weren't helped when Nansen, the cat, who had been affectionate and playful, hid in the corners of the ship, growling at anyone who neared her. The cat was, like the men, suffering from some disease or condition and would die on June 25th. The rat situation would only grow worse. As for the gloom that had taken hold of Belgica, it only increased. Men were tired of each other. They saw the same faces each day, ate the same slop each evening, and played the same game of cards each night. Cook wrote, quote, The truth is that we are at this moment as tired of each other's company as we are of the cold monotony of the black night and of the unpalatable sameness of our food, end quote. Quirks amongst the crew emerged as well. Cook decided not to cut his hair and would end up with a long mane in the coming months. Others refused to take their mandatory weekly sponge bath. The men were breaking down. Some of them became bedridden, including Degarlage, as scurvy took hold. Cook became convinced that they needed light, so he encouraged the men to stand naked around a roaring fire. It helped some of the men, a crude form of light therapy, and aided against what today we call seasonal affective disorder. Cook tried to keep the men active, ordering them to walk on the ice around the ship for an hour each day. This was called the madhouse promenade by the crew. Cook continued to see the men regularly, which earned him their gratitude. But from his conversations with them, he could see they were losing their grip on sanity. 
He wrote, quote, murder, suicide, starvation, insanity, icy death, and the acts of the devil become regular mental pictures, end quote. Henrik Arkowski summed it up best when he said, quote, we are in a madhouse, end quote. And it was here when things looked so bleak that Cook put it all together. The sore gums, the aching muscles, the headaches, the disorientation, the wild mood swings. Scurvy. As I said earlier, the problem was that anything on board the Belgica that might have helped the men with scurvy, known as antiscorbutics, had been canned, which destroyed the nutrients. The men needed fresh limes, oranges, and vegetables. They had none. Sauerkraut and fresh meat were known antiscorbutics as well, but again, none of it was on board. Cook would then turn to his own experience in the north with the Inuit and ask himself, how did they survive? In the winter, the Inuit lived for months on a diet of fresh, or frozen and thawed, meat and blubber. Cook rightly guessed that raw meat was an antiscorbutic. And so the order went out. The men were to start eating a daily diet of penguin and seal steaks, only lightly cooked. Now, the big problem with this was that the men hated penguin and seal meat. However, they trusted Cook. Combine that with the fact that many of them were sick and miserable, and they went along with the plan. At least most of them. Degarlache and Laquante, despite getting sicker and sicker, refused to eat the disgusting meat. This allowed the men, if they wanted, to opt out of the meal. I mean, if the commander and the captain weren't eating it, they weren't going to either. On the flip side, you had Roald Amundsen. He trusted Cook, and he immediately began to consume raw meat. And you know what? Within a few days, he was feeling better. This would only strengthen the bond between the two men. Cook was able to point to this, and the other men began to follow his orders. Within days, the condition of the men who ate the meat began to improve. The thing about scurvy is that while it can be deadly, it's easy to treat if you know what you need. The body just needs a little vitamin C to keep the disease at bay. It's not like you need jugs and jugs of orange juice every day. Anyhow, those who ate the meat began to improve, but many people were reluctant. This included De Garlache and Laquante. On July 10th, Laquante woke to find his legs engorged, a sign of advanced scurvy. Soon he couldn't move his legs or his arms. He feared he was going to die. Cook ordered him to eat raw meat, drink hot water, and stand in front of a hot fire three times a day. Laquante was so miserable, he agreed, saying, I will sit on the stove for a month and eat penguins for the rest of my polar life, if that will do me good. End quote. The captain was so bad, Cook wasn't optimistic he'd recover. But little by little, Laquante improved. By July 18th, he was well enough to go on the deck and conduct his routine observations. As for Degarlache, he endured similar problems. However, the commandant was already a moody sort of a man, so his depression and anxiety was acute. Cook could only press the commandant to eat better. Milk, cranberry sauce, fresh penguin or seal steaks, lightly fried in oleo, plus baking treatments in front of the fire. Finally, Degarlache could not discount Cook's remedies, as the rest of the crew were getting better. He started to eat meat, but it was not easy. He struggled to keep it down unless it was cooked. Thus, things took time, but he did begin to get better. And so, the physical health of the men of Belgica was improving, and their mental health as well. One of the reasons for this was the return of life to the ice. On July 8th, small leads and holes appeared on the ice, and there were signs that the seals had returned with these openings. A team was sent out on an excursion to investigate and found a group of 20 seals. They killed several and brought them back to the ship. But nothing helped to improve the crew's mental health more than the arrival of July 22nd, the day the sun was scheduled to return. In the late morning of that day, the men gathered outside and waited. Some found spots atop hummocks or icebergs, others in the crow's nest or in the rigging. 
Cook, Amundsen, Degarlache, and Laquante, the last two moving with difficulty due to the lingering effects of scurvy, walked to the top of an iceberg near Belgica, and there they waited and watched and hoped and prayed. And then it happened at noon, the sun made an appearance. To the men it was like a miracle, having not seen such a thing for seventy days, and enduring death and madness. The long night was over. The men could only stare at the sun in silence and in awe. Degalash wrote, quote, Our eyes were dazzled by this radiant vision. End quote. Frederick Cook, ever the dramatic writer, said, quote, We could not have found words with which to express the buoyant feeling of relief and the emotion of the new life, which was sent coursing through our arteries by the hammer-like beats of our enfeebled hearts. End quote. The sun was soon gone, but there was a euphoria amongst the crew. The sun meant that winter was coming to an end, which would bring spring, which would bring summer, and that would bring hope that they would escape their ice-bound prison. The men celebrated by gathering together and getting their hair and beards cut, as many had let them grow during the winter. Cook was nominated for the job of barber, perhaps because as a doctor they trusted his hand with a blade and scissors, or perhaps they just trusted Cook more than anyone else on the ship. Unfortunately, Cook turned out to be more of a butcher than a barber, and the men had a good time making fun of each other's haircuts. And so, the scurvy crisis was, mostly, in the past, and the men of Belgica could enjoy the sun once again. It was a major milestone. Each day the sun returned, staying up longer as the month came to a close. Seabirds were spotted, and eventually the sound of braying penguins was heard. Life was returning. And then on July 28th, the men reported feeling the warmth of the sun. And for a short time, the men could bask in the light. And so this is where I will wrap up things for today. The winter of 1898 was ebbing away. But let's be clear, the Belgica was far from being removed from harm's way. While the men hoped that the ship would eventually free itself, they didn't know when or if that was in the cards. And so you can join us next time as we try to break out of the icy prison that held Belgica in its grip. I hope you've enjoyed our story thus far. Thank you for listening. I will see you next time for the final chapter in the Belgica Expedition. The Explorers Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to find other cool shows. This includes three shows made specifically for bedtime for families, including Sleep Tight Stories, Sleep Tight Science, and Sleep Tight Relax. Just saying those titles makes me feel calm and cozy. Enjoy. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, my name is Matt host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.